0: Alf Landon, Wendell Wilkie, Thomas Dewey, Adelaide Stevenson, Barry Goldwater, George McGovern, Walter Mondale, Bob Dole, John Kerry, Mitt Romney. Those are all the people that have run against a sitting president in the United States of America since 1932 and lost. FDR bodied three of them, the madman. Electability is gonna be a word you hear a lot over the next several months, specifically as we go into a unusually busy and contentious democratic primary. For the first time in a little while, we seem to really have four candidates that could very plausibly take this nomination. Specifically, since electability is going to cross pollinate with people's personal beliefs on where both the Democratic Party and the country should be going. But what is electability? And why did none of the people that I just mentioned have it? There was a lot of different experience in the names that I just read. They all came from different places and some ran good campaigns, some ran terrible campaigns. But in general, what we know is this. If you are running against a sitting president, the odds are against you. I didn't count George H.W. Bush in the Bill Clinton election, mostly because I, I tend to think of George H.W. Bush 41, Bush 41, as really an outgrowth of Reagan. Which, of course, brings us to the man that did it. The man
1: held in that knocked captivity. off a sitting president. I'll confess that I. Been a little afraid to suggest what I'm going to suggest. I'm more afraid not to. Can we begin our crusade? Join together in a moment of silent prayer.
0: This is Ronald Reagan accepting the nomination at the Republican convention in 1980.
1: God bless America. Thank you.
0: About history, right? This is the moment where we think about Ronald Reagan, the two-term president. We think of everything that went into that. We think of the fall of the Soviet Union. But in this moment, right now, Ronald Reagan is just another name like all the names that I read before. Here is Sam Donaldson discussing how likely it was that Ronald Reagan would win that election up to the 11th hour. Well, on the Friday before the election, the
1: polls were dead even. Jimmy Carter's polls, the public polls, and Ronald Reagan's polls were dead even. People were clearly trying to find a way to not kill the king, to reelect this guy. When my friend George Will says there was this great conservative tide sweeping Ronald Reagan of the country, well, where was
0: it, George? But like a tsunami, right? It didn't come up to the last minute. Now, there's a whole thing we can get into about where conservatives specifically trust the media's judgment on stuff like this and trust polls. But here's what is not in dispute. Let's replace Reagan with average politician. Let's take all those names that I mentioned. Let's add all of their political acumen. Let's take all their staffs. Let's, let, let's put them in a gigantic blender. And then let's pour out just the average. Here's what they would have to play with. A hostage crisis that had spanned so long that the news coverage of that crisis became its own television show that is still on today, the year of our Lord 2020.
1: This is ABC News Nightline, reporting from Washington. Ted Koppel. Good evening. This is a new broadcast in the sense that it is permanent and will continue after the Iran crisis is over. There will also be nights when Iran is not the major story, when we'll bring you briefly up to date on Iran, but we'll focus on some other story. That's not the case tonight. Again, today, Iran is the major story.
0: Let me just make perfectly clear what I'm saying. Nightline begins because this is such a big story, and it is still on today after Jimmy Kimmel. That's what a massive story the Iranian hostage crisis was. That's how traumatic it was. By the way, add gas shortages to that. Add a struggling economy to that. There was unrest in America, and Jimmy Carter lost in part because of it. I wonder, our fantasy mediocre candidate, how they would have done against this sitting president. Would they be able to pull off the impossible, or was it something that only Ronald Reagan could possibly achieve? Which brings me back to electability. It's very hard to run against a sitting president. And anybody who thinks that this time is going to be different is selling you a bill of goods. What my question is to you, dear listener, is is it even reasonable to say that anybody is inherently more electable than the other? Because... What you're presuming is that somebody in there is going to be able to do what so many have been unable to. Take a look at somebody sitting in the White House and say, I can do that better than you and have America agree. With that, it is at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, that I am thrilled to announce PX3 Begins. Now! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Friday edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young, We've got a hell of a show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about where we are right now with impeachment. We are going to talk about the looming possibility of Barack Obama stepping in to the 2020 fray, maybe a little earlier than he thought he was going to. And we are going to have an interview all about The Green New Deal. But first, I want to talk about something uh, 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 a little amusing to me. The bubbling reports throughout the Twitterverse this morning, and then confirmed by the man himself, have it that indeed, we will see the dawning of a new era in multimedia. Folks, we will all remember where we were when everything changed. We will all know where we were when Rudy Giuliani's podcast dropped. (laughs) This was something that was rumored, and apparently it's going to happen. The, the, The thing that circulated amongst the podcast sphere this morning was, Rudy Giuliani uh, apparently being overheard in a uh, the, the the JFK Airport Delta Lounge, yelling into a speakerphone that no one's going to be able to find his podcast, for which regardless of their political stripes, all podcasters gathered together so they might say out loud and in unison, I know that feel, bro. But it is out. It is real. Rudy Giuliani indeed has a podcast. It is called Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense. And in the most hilarious development thus far, it's not a podcast. (laughs) No, it's a YouTube video. Oh, Rudy, he doesn't even have an RSS feed for it. You silly goose. The majority of the first episode is all about his thoughts on what should be happening in the impeachment trial. And more specifically, I would take a wild guess as to say that this is his pitch to Trump as to how he would have handled it if he were to try the case, which he was very open and forthright about, that he really wanted to try the case. That was his big thing. But he does hint at new information, information that he would be breaking on this, his new show, Rudy Giuliani Common Sense, wherein, not a joke, he styles himself after Thomas Paine, who, of course, wrote the book Common Sense that helped lead to the American Revolution. Let it not be said that Rudy Giuliani has a low sense of himself. He delivers all this information staring directly into the camera. We get the full uh, bug eye Rudy effect here and again. There's not really a whole lot of switching to other shots. In fact, I'm almost positive that he did all of this in one take. I did skip around a little bit, so I'm not I'm not sure. But whenever I stopped and played it for a while, it seemed like he was was just going. So, he, I mean, it's like the, the the Jay-Z of rambling political punditry. He's like the old version of px 3 before I realized I could stop and edit it. But here are the clips that I found to be most interesting. This is what he says he will be dropping as we go further into the quixotic odyssey that is Rudy Giuliani common sense. You're going
1: to see millions and millions of dollars flowing into their hands, and you're going to see a pattern with Biden that goes beyond Ukraine. When you see the words point man Biden, then put next to it, how much money, how many millions did the family get when he got the point man job? It was a good day in the Biden family when he became point man. When he became point man in Iraq, lots of money came to his brother. When he became point man in Ukraine, lots of money came to the son and the brother. And when he became point man in China, well, you'll find out what happened. I don't
0: think any of this is going to affect anything to do with impeachment. But if I were the Biden campaign, I would, at this point, if they have not gotten there already, become very annoyed that this was the center of the impeachment investigation, (laughs) because whether or not it's true, it's going to be out there. This is not going to go away because Joe Biden's bad at talking about this. He doesn't like dealing with it. He doesn't like talking about Hunter. And until you can offer a, a salient reason of why the, Let's say euphemistically, free-spirited son of the vice president of the United States is involved for that amount of money on that board, even if it's just simple. Hey, hey, look, a lot of opportunities come to rich and powerful people. Yeah, they were probably trying to buy influence, but they didn't get any. In in, in the meantime, what was I going to do? Deny my son the opportunity to make some money. Like, if you don't have an answer for it, then it's not gonna go away.
1: Rudy promises yet more. I particularly look forward to bringing to you many of the facts that I have discovered that no one knows yet, that are quite dramatic, and that clearly support every single thing that uh, we've talked about. I found those facts in my role as counsel for President Trump in order to defend him. And I can think of no more appropriate thing to do than to share them with you. They're somewhat, they're somewhat startling, so don't get ready for it.
0: Startling but content ahead. Don't be too scared when the startling content comes pouring forth on Rudy Giuliani's common sense. Of course... Long-time listeners to this show know that ever since the concept of a Rudy podcast was first mentioned, the only thing I wanted was for him to do an ad. I swear to God, Rudy, I'm saying this as a personal, me-to-you comment. If you end this series without doing a podcast read, you're an idiot and and I'm furious. I want a Sherry's Berries read for Valentine's Day. I want a Casper Mattress read. I want a Blue Chew read. I want all the reads. Give me what I want. Politics! All right, let's talk a little bit about Obama. There was a Fox Business report earlier this week that said that privately Obama has been expressing to his friends that should Bernie Sanders look more and more like the front runner, then he might be more and more likely to step out of the shadows and endorse somebody that could stem that. I immediately, that's actually why I started thinking about this electability thing that I led the podcast with, because I find that concept fascinating. There's a little bit of a self-selection bias in here because working on this season two of Raise the Dead, I'm reading all about Barry Goldwater, and man, I mean, my, my hypothesis going into it, spoiler alert, is that Barry Goldwater and Bernie Sanders are kind of parallel figures. And something that we saw with Barry Goldwater was that the establishment of that party fought very hard against him. And Goldwater reacted in ways that on one level earned him the nomination. On the other level, once he earned it, the party was so damaged and he had left such gigantic gaping holes in his campaign that they were very easily exploited by Lyndon Baines Johnson. Now, there's a million other things that go into it, and and that'll be that podcast. But the idea... That Barack Obama would play the role of Dwight Eisenhower in this scenario, somebody that is very concerned about a political ideologue coming in and not only creating a rift in the party, but also effectively surrendering a chance for, to, to put a Democrat back in the White House, at least in the mind of the establishment is very, very interesting to me. There's also a larger question of what is Obama's role right now? Because he's the president for eight years, and obviously he's very beloved, but I don't know if... Well, let me put it this way. If Barack Obama was running now with all the things that Barack Obama ran on in both of his races, he would be to the right of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is running a more progressive campaign than Barack Obama ran either in 2008, or sorry, 2000, yeah, 2008 or 2012. And so with a party that has its most excitable elements tilting ever leftward, do we have a situation where Obama might not be the mover and shaker that he once was. Is Obama going to find out like Bill Clinton found out when Bill Clinton came out trying to uh, stump for his wife against this upstart Barry character that sometimes in the Democratic Party, the past is the past is the past. You've had your moment. But for a progressive party, you will always be an anchor to something that isn't as progressive as they want. The other question becomes, who would Barack Obama endorse? Biden would be the obvious answer. And we will see how he fares through Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. But maybe it's Warren. Maybe what we are seeing, specifically with Warren saying, I'll get to Medicare for All. I'm going to make you believe in Medicare for All before I try to push it through. Maybe the idea that she wants to say that, that her healthcare system would not raise taxes. All of these shuffles to the center. Maybe this is for a purpose. I've had this personal theory that one of the reasons why you've seen Elizabeth Warren shuffle a little bit closer to the moderate lane is because, you know, Bernie has his heart attack. They call in the, the, the reinforcements with the squad. They, they have the big press conference and uh, uh, Bernie gets the AOC nomination. Now, leading up to that, you had a question of of whether or not maybe AOC endorses Warren. Warren had written a glowing uh, tribute to AOC in, in a magazine. There was these little elements that obviously she would most likely be supporting Bernie, but you never know, right? Stranger things have happened in politics. Well, that train leaves the station. She endorses Bernie. And right after that, you start to see her drift. So what if this was a push and a pull? Knowing that she wasn't going to get the hottest young star in progressive politics, maybe the next step was, well, maybe Obama. Now, in all likelihood, I think that at the end earliest that we would see Obama put his his uh, his name into play would be South Carolina. Specifically, if it's Biden. If Biden takes an L in Iowa, and by that I mean third place, right? And then he's third place in New Hampshire, and then he's second place in and Nevada, and now he needs South Carolina, and he needs momentum going into Super Tuesday, which is only a few days after that, then that would be the moment. No one's going to electrify the black vote in South Carolina like Barack Obama. He blows out everybody and then has momentum going into Super Tuesday, and now you can have this... uh, You can have this moment. But I will tell you this. The people that will never forget this, if it happens, if Obama doesn't follow through with what he said before, that he's going to wait until somebody gets the nomination and then he's going to endorse that person because getting Trump out of office is the number one thing. If indeed he steps in and meddles, and specifically the reason Is because Bernie Sanders is that leading candidate, then the true believers of St. Bernard will never, ever forgive him. Oh, he will be Hillary level toxic to those who would love to see Bernie Sanders get the nod. Politics! All right. Impeachment. Let's talk about impeachment. Um, it's happening. Democrats are wrapping up today. GOP begins their statements tomorrow. We're probably going to get our witness vote sometime soon. At which point... We'll probably see the GOP hold, at which point this thing's done by Friday. So, with that out there, there are two things. Number one, I was thinking about this today. If I were the Democrats, and my goal was, I want to unite the country to understand that this is a, a moment in time where we have to act. And I'm watching the fact that the ratings on this stuff are not great. Like, less people are watching this than watch the Kavanaugh confirmations. Less people are watching this than uh, watched other, like, the healthcare debates. Like, we are seeing a degradation of interest in this kind of stuff. And they are given 24 hours split over two days to make their case Why use all 24 hours? Allow me to pitch something that might sound a little odd, but why not be a little bit more like Rudy? Put all of your arguments into a 30-minute thing that is inescapable. Put it up on SoundCloud, put it up on, on a podcast, put it up on YouTube, and just say, all right, this is the official statement. This is why Donald Trump needs to be removed Right now. And at the end of it, if you find that what you are hearing right now is disgusting, if you believe that what you have just heard is something that needs to be acted on, because if it is not acted on, then the fact that we have any kind of impeachment powers are rendered totally moot and neutered, then what I want you to do is go to this website, bit.ly slash senator lookup hot senators in your area want to talk to you and call your local representative. Call both of them. And you tell them you need to vote to remove. Why do this long, protracted thing that no human being can possibly consume? I just don't understand it. Make it concise. Try to propagate it. Like, if if, if you are trying to get him out, like, otherwise, you are literally, literally just boring everybody. Because nothing is new so far. Here's all that's new. What's new right now is that Lev Parnas, you know, uh, uh, the the newest, the newest hero for the left, uh, uh, recorded Donald Trump and ABC News has the tape, and the tape shows, or according to ABC News, Trump is confirming that he's going to fire the ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch. Which, look, man, that is what it is, but presidents have a right to fire ambassadors for any reason. And no one's going to be able to make a compelling argument to the United States, the, the the citizens of the United States, that ambassadors are these holy people. Now, you can say that she was a good ambassador, unlike the ambassadors that are just handed these positions because they're campaign donors. But that that's a, that's a, you know, you're really moving uphill. Here's the most ridiculous article that I saw today. This was from CBS News. The quote, Senators have been told by the White House, vote against the president and your head will be on a pike. I have no doubt that this is true. I have no doubt that somebody said this, or the equivalent messaging has been delivered to these senators. I will also say this. No one needed to tell him. The president is 95% popular within the party that they are a part of. Like, this is just not going to go well for them if they vote against him. The fact that somebody from the White House repeated it doesn't change that fact. But that's not what's ridiculous. What's ridiculous is this. Are you telling me that there was no kind of, of, of gruff, tough talk from Nancy Pelosi or the House leadership? That, that nobody in the House got a stern talking to about how important it was to, to vote as a block? So we and and out of those reports that come out of, you know, uh, some uh, a few more bits of pork were were doled out to those that were in in red districts, that knew that they were imperiling themselves politically by voting for impeachment. Come on, come on! This is the job. The job of these folks are to corral votes. Like this is not. No, this is not newsworthy, in my opinion. Now, I guess I like to hear stuff like that because I like to hear, you know, politicians being mean to each other. That's just, like, my thing. But come on. for those who are like, this is the descent into fascism. Jeez Louise with cheese. Politics! Hey, we are going to keep the Patreon plug short today, but takepoliticsseriously.com. I I don't even know what to say anymore. We blew past the 1776 goal. We have continued to see people that are are a part of this uh, uh that are 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 taking us ever skyward. So uh, uh, allow me to not shill for you. We'll, we'll just mention all the regular $3 gets you two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Thursday. But let me let me really dig this time just to explain to you guys that we are in Next week, next Friday's episode, Uh, one week from today, I will be in Iowa. So you are getting Iowa content then. I'm going to be in Iowa all throughout the weekend. So the Monday episode, the bonus episode on Monday, will be all stuff that I am doing from Iowa during that time. So now is a great time to get on it. Past that, I'm off to New Hampshire Pass that, I'm off to Nevada. Pass that, I'm off to South Carolina. And then I come back home to California so I can uh, be there for Super Tuesday. Because California's a Super Tuesday state this time. This is when it's worth it. This is when... I, I've been, all uh, of the $3 club has known that I've been doing all the bonus podcasts outside so I can get used to being on the road. I feel like we have we have become a bigger, better show because of it. Now's the time to get on the train because we are literally leaving the station this week. Iowa, here we come. Politics. Our guest today is Leah Stokes. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara, and she's going to tell us all about the politics of the Green New Deal. Let's welcome her to the show. Leah, thank you for coming on.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me on.
0: All right. So the Green New Deal, this is something that's talked about a lot, seems as if it kind of shifts and changes a little bit, depending on who is the one talking about it, but... Let me ask you a basic question. Where did the Green New Deal start?
2: Yeah, so uh, back in the fall of 2018, a number of things happened. This really big report came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC, and it basically um, was a report that said, here's what we need to do to keep warming to one and a half degrees Celsius or below. And um, that really scared a lot of people, and then journalists started talking about, we have 12 years. And around that that same time, a group called the Sunrise Movement did a sit-in right after the fall 2018 election um, in Nancy Pelosi's office, and their goal was to try to elevate the issue of climate change within the Democratic Party's priorities. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez had just been elected, and they asked her if she would come to this um, sit-in, and she did. And my what I've heard as a story is that um, you know she said, "Hey, we got to have an ask. We need to say what do we want out of this sit-in." And they had signs that said "Green Jobs Now," but the ask ended up being for a Green New Deal, and uh, that was kind of brought up between sunrise and aoc and before you knew it it was all over the press and all over the media and this idea had a lot of legs and uh it kind of took off from there
0: so obviously at that point right you are if the origin point is we want nancy pelosi to sign on so she understands how important this is to us a influential and growing uh of uh, Group in in the Democratic electorate, it doesn't exactly have a ton of specifics, right? Is 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 the Green New Deal just a catch all for bold environmental reforms that could affect the, the the trajectory of this IPCC report?
2: Well, it's changed a fair amount since that first sit in. So uh, in early 2019, there was a House resolution that was sponsored by AOC and. Um, Uh, senator markey and their goal was to try to have the discussion begin and so the house resolution didn't have a lot of details it more set out the priorities and gave uh, a framework for thinking about the problem from there this began to permeate into the democratic primary and that's where i think the green new deal got very fleshed out in terms of details Uh, Specifically, Jay Inslee's campaign ended up writing about 400 pages if I remember correctly. Uh, Was it 400 or 200? Some hundreds of pages. Hundreds of pages.
0: Let's settle (laughs) on hundreds.
2: I think it might be 400, but then when I say that, that seems so long. So I think it's got to be 200, so I must be wrong. Anyway, it was hundreds of pages, and therefore you can get the idea that it was a very detailed document which really got into the nitty-gritty of how would we reduce emissions in the electricity sector, in the transportation sector, in buildings, in heavy industry? How would we make sure we did it with justice? This really was a roadmap forward and a number of other candidates, including all the front runners right now, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders, their campaigns have all put out fairly detailed plans. The Warren plans are a series of a number of different ideas put out in kind of smaller plans. And then both Bernie and Joe have put out sort of one big Green New Deal idea. So yeah, that's where I think you can see a lot of the details. Oh, and I should also say Pete Buttigieg has also come out with a fairly comprehensive um, climate plan.
0: So all of these are slightly different, but yet fall into the bucket of if, if, let's say, During a debate, they were asked, do you support the Green New Deal? They could all raise their hands because they support what they are calling the Green New Deal.
2: Yes, that's definitely true, and that's been asked in the past. And the one um, previous candidate in the primary was Hickenlooper from Colorado, and he was very critical of the Green New Deal. But other than him, uh, I would say that across the board, the mainstream candidates have been very supportive of the idea. And for example, when um, Senator Harris was running, uh, she came out with a number of different bills and policies, including one co-sponsored by AOC, to try to talk about and how we were going to decarbonize in a way that brought justice to um, black and brown communities. You also saw that um, uh, Cory Booker, who just dropped out yesterday, he um, he came up with a lot of very detailed plans too, the same for Andrew Yang. So a lot of the candidates have had their own spin on what the Green New Deal is, but they have all been very supportive of action on climate change. And that's a big change from what we saw, for example, in 2016.
0: All right. There there seems to be, to me, at least when we talk about the Green New Deal and probably environmental action just writ large, that there are two elements uh, that, that you can focus on, the goals and the costs. So let's start with the goals. What are, broadly speaking, uh, the, the goals of all of these separate but obviously similar Green New Deal proposals?
2: Yeah, so I think we can get into specific targets and timetables, but to take a step back for a second, the goal of addressing climate change at the scale necessary is to preserve a stable society for all of us, for current generations, for future generations, Having a stable climate is not um, an optional thing. It's a necessary thing. When we think about hurricanes getting more intense, sea level rise, displacing communities in places like Florida, but even places like New Jersey and New York, When we think about wildfires in the West, you know, two times as much land has burned because of climate change than would have otherwise in the American West. So this is already costing Americans huge amounts of money as well as lives. And it is only going to get worse because we've only warmed the planet by one degree Celsius. So that is the goal writ large. It's to finally mount a response from our federal government on the scale that is necessary to ensure that we can have a stable climate and continue to have a stable society. Um, Now when you get into the specific targets and timetables, they're not that different across the board, but um, when you really understand climate policy in detail, even small differences in like five years or ten years makes a huge difference in terms of how hard it is to achieve. Bernie Sanders' plan. In terms of targets and timetables, is to have 100% renewable energy by 2030 and to zero out emissions from the transportation sector by 2030. And um, somebody just asked me today if I thought that was doable. Uh, I don't really think that's doable. I wish it was more doable. Yeah. Um, but there's a number of problems with that plan. Uh, first of all, that that speed of action, while I very much take the climate threat seriously, is going to strain for example, environmental assessment processes. So we have rules about how quickly it is that we build a wind project or build a solar project. And um, completely decarbonizing the electricity and transportation sector, uh, that would represent more than 20 times an increase over historic deployment rates just in the electricity sector. So it's really huge. And the other important thing to note about that is when you say only renewables by 2030, you're taking off the table nuclear energy. And while building new nuclear energy is very expensive and not very popular, 55% of our clean energy today, our clean electricity, comes from nuclear. So to take that half of what we've already managed to accomplish and to say, well, we're not going to use that If it's safe and we can keep it operating, that's not a great idea. So um, those are his targets, and I think they're very um, ambitious and they are very laudatory. But I think some of the details are a little problematic.
0: Yeah, Um, I mean, uh, twenty thirty is what we would like to refer to in the industry as ten years from now. Like (laughs) that—that is—that is is not a long amount of time. You know, anybody can remember. You know, it feels like yesterday that it it was 2010 and now we're at 2020. So these things move fast.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I'll say that when Jay Inslee's first plan came out, they had a target of 2035 to do the same kind of thing. And I said, wow, that's pretty crazy. Like, I don't know how you're going to do it. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I don't support Bernie's ambition or focus on climate change. I think that's great. But these targets and timetables, when you think about historic deployment, and when you think about, make, you need to make sure that local communities want these technologies in their backyards. I just think that that's where some of these challenges come up. Um, so the next, the next candidate uh, is Elizabeth Warren, and she has a plan that is modeled off of Jay Inslee's sort of gold standard climate plan. So she says that by 2035, So that's five years later. Uh, She would plan to have 100% clean electricity. So what does that mean? It means that nuclear energy can still count. And for the plants that we already have operating. And she wants to do the same thing for transportation by that timeline. So you might say, well, that's only five years more, but actually, that's 50% more time because the first plan is only 10 years. So 15 years gives you an extra 50%. And when you run the numbers, it's actually true that it is 50% easier on an annual basis to meet that target that the Warren plan has set out than it is to meet the Bernie target. Um, and I think in particular, uh, shutting down safe nuclear plants is not a great idea. There, there are some that we're going to need to close because they're not going to be able to operate for much longer. But we know from the experience of Germany, uh, Vermont, and California that when nuclear plants get shut down too early, what happens is that we burn more fossil fuels, either natural gas or coal. And that's just a concern that I have. I don't want us to burn more fossil fuels because we're shutting down nuclear energy that is zero carbon. Um, so that's the the Warren plan.
0: And then- yeah, that, if, we could, if we could pause r- yes. r- real quick on, on the idea of nuclear energy, uh, that does seem to be something that has sort of flip flopped on either side of the orthodoxy of mm-hmm. environmentalism, right? That that it was something that was very much uh, uh, the, the 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 greatest possible evil, maybe in the seventies and early eighties, and with the you know Chernobyl and Three Mile mm-hmm. Island, uh, that that certainly heightened those fears. But in you know uh, hindsight now, even some very radical environmental activists say that it's among the the cleanest ways that we can power, at least at the kind of scale that we are going to need to.
2: Yeah, when I first started working on climate change over 15 years ago, I was not pro-nuclear. A lot of environmentalists were not. Um, but And I think if you look at the history of the environmental movement, and I think it's certainly true of Bernie Sanders as a person, Uh, It was very much tied to anti-nuclear weapons, If you think about the history of the Union of Concerned Scientists as an organization, UCS, a wonderful organization, um, you know, they in part were growing out of an anti-nuclear movement, mostly focused around weapons, but also focused around nuclear energy because of concerns about proliferation and also waste. Um, But I think what has happened is that uh, climate change has really grown in terms of its severity and the risk that we understand that it poses. And so I think a lot of people now think that, look, if we already have nuclear plants operating, we should try to keep them open. And the thing is, assuming that they're safe, of course, the thing is that what is shutting down nuclear today is not safety or something like that. It's actually cheap fossil gas. It's natural gas flooding into the market and basically suppressing prices so that nuclear and renewables cannot compete as much. And the problem with that is that because we don't have a price on carbon pollution, we've never made polluters pay, um, nuclear energy doesn't get any credit for the fact that it's providing that clean, carbon-free energy. And so in certain cases, these nuclear plants are closing down because they are not able to compete with really cheap, polluting fossil fuels. And we don't want a situation like that. We don't want to be you know, building a lot of new natural gas infrastructure to run fossil gas when we could be keeping open safe nuclear plants. And I think that that is the reckoning that a lot of environmental groups have gone through, looking at the experience of, for example, Germany, which shut down its nuclear fleet, um, in part after the Fukushima disaster. So, um, if you look at the Union of Concerned Scientists or the World Resources Institute, they have changed some of their positions around nuclear energy. And I think more generally, uh, many people in the environmental movement now uh, have a different view. And, and I put myself in that camp as
0: well. All right, let, let's go ahead and get back to the plans.
2: Yes, uh, that was a little nuclear detour. There we go. So- <laughs> so, and and speaking of nuclear, Joe Biden, another front runner, uh, his plan is more pro-nuclear. He, he doesn't just say, like Elizabeth Warren says, look, I want to try to keep safe plants open as long as I can. He actually says we need to build new nuclear. And that was the same position that Cory Booker was very um, forceful in saying, too. Um, you know, Right now, nuclear is not competitive. So, if you want to build a new plant, it takes a really long time to build and it tends to cost way more than you even budgeted. And so, it's not very competitive. So, that's why some people say, well, let's not build new plants. It's going to be a lot of money and we can't even get it online fast enough. If we're talking about 2030 or 2035, nuclear plants take a long time to build, like a decade or more. And so, that's not fast enough to deal with the climate crisis. But um, You know, Joe Biden overall takes a more long-term approach. His targets are 2050. They're not 2030 or 2035. And he doesn't get into as much detail about what sectors are going to meet what targets by when. He more says that he wants the entire economy to be carbon Uh, Neutral by 2050. Um, And he doesn't set a target for the electricity sector. So um, some people have said that his plans are less ambitious. Um, You know, and uh, to me, I think where I have some concerns is more about his historical voting record. Um, He doesn't, so there's something called the League of Conservation Voters. They will score every vote that you make in Congress and they'll say if it was a good environment vote or not. And his score is, I believe, 84, which is is much lower than the other candidates, Bernie and and, uh, Warren have in the high 90s. So that's just not as solid, and for example, Um, A really important policy that we have had is to increase fuel efficiency standards for cars to make our cars run on less oil, basically. And he actually voted against doing that five times when he was in the Congress. Um, And I don't—maybe Joe has changed. Maybe he now understands the climate crisis and he wants to step up to the plate. And And I'm open to that. But um, that's just really important for whoever the next president is, and hopefully it's not Trump again, to have somebody who really understands the scale and scope of the crisis. Um, and I, I have a bit more confidence where Warren are, and Bernie are concerned uh, than I do uh, with Biden.
0: Well, let's let's segue real quick into some of the the concerns, if not criticisms, because the the idea here. Of timetable, 30, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, uh, uh, what have you, would seem to be that even if everybody agreed we need to make these reforms, if they're going to happen fast, they tend to happen because the government has a punitive uh, uh, edge to it. Right. Or there there are things that are forcing you to do it uh, because this is. Of such a necessity, uh, what do you say to to that? That the faster the timetable, the harsher those punishments would have to be.
2: Well, the government. Can use a lot of different approaches It's not all sticks It can also be carrots And so Congress uh, Since the early 90s Has had incentives for wind and solar They're not big enough They're not driving things fast enough But they've actually been Giving companies tax breaks To build more wind and solar And those policies At the federal level Have been combined with state requirements uh, Where basically they say to utilities Hey, by this year You have to have Have a certain amount of your electricity mix to come from clean energy or renewable energy sources. Those are called renewable portfolio standards. So it can be a combination of state and federal policy and a combination of requirements and incentives. so I don't think that it necessarily has to be you know, really big punishments in order to move at the scale that we need to. It could also just be spending. And the benefit of spending a lot of money on trying to solve the climate crisis is that it would really help fuel the economy. If you think about what the New Deal was for, it was for heating up the economy and getting people jobs and ending unemployment or, or reducing it dramatically, and that's the same kind of vision here. that we can get a lot of Americans to work doing things that we really need to get done, and we can pay them good-paying wages, and uh, we can really have a flourishing economy that is healthier and safer for all Americans. So I don't think it's necessarily a punitive vision. I think it can be a kind of hopeful vision about the world that we
0: want to create. All right, uh, real quick question about wind and solar, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm totally off base here, but... I've understood that the problem there is never collection or, or never never uh, 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 the 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 net right you can always catch you know sun rays uh, and and wind and generate possible power out of it the 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 issue has always been storing it that that mm-hmm. battery capacity is something that thankfully now in a world post smartphone and electric car battery technology continues to kind of take quantum leaps forward but uh they're still not what we want is is that on base
2: yeah i just taught my students about this in my class yesterday so um what we say about wind and solar is they're intermittent resources. What do we mean? We mean that the wind is not blowing every second of the day and the sun is not shining every minute of the day. And so that means that when the sun goes down overnight, we need some way to still power our homes. But the good news is, just like you were saying, is that we actually have a lot of ways to do that. And a lot of uh, researchers are saying that it's actually pretty easy to get to something like 80% renewable energy. It's that last 10, to 20% that's harder. And the way that we can get to that 80% is doing what you said. We can build batteries, whether that's you know, batteries at the grid scale or in your houses, like the Tesla Powerwall that some people might know about. Um, we can also build really big pumped hydro storage, which is basically um, you can think of water at different elevations and when you have more energy on the grid than you need, let's say when the sun is out, you pump that water uphill and then overnight when everybody is gone to sleep along with the sun, you put that water back down and you run it just like you would run a hydro power system and you can create electricity that way. So that's another way that we can store it. And it's not just storage that's a solution to this problem. We can also build transmission lines because it turns out that You know, wind and sun are not all the same in every single corner of the United States at every moment. So if we connect different parts of the U.S., then it might be windy in Kansas one second and then windy in Texas another second. And so we can move that electricity around and balance out some of that day-to-day or second-to-second variation. And then the third thing we can do is actually make the demand side, meaning um, the people using the energy, a lot more flexible. What do I mean by that? I mean that companies or houses or appliances can kind of turn off when we don't have as much energy on the system. So let's say you have a factory that's making something. You can actually pay them overnight to not be making that because there's not as much energy around. So all of our society can actually become more flexible to the intermittency of the wind and solar. And that doesn't have to be um, a hard thing for people to do. We can have appliances that kind of do it automatically and then we can have incentives so that people could actually get paid to let's say, not run their washing machine at a certain time or not run their dishwasher at a certain time. That can reduce their electricity bill. So there's lots of solutions that we have to solve some of these problems. The issue is that we need our state and federal governments to say, hey, let's all go in that direction, let's try to target 80% 80% renewables as fast as we can. And there are a few states doing that, like uh, California and New York and Hawaii and even places like New Mexico. But we need more states across the board to do it, and then we need the federal government to say, we're going to help you financially to get it done.
0: All right, let me, let me ask you this, because it was a criticism of the Paris Climate Accords that Trump pulled out of, Obama got us into and, and Trump pulled out of, but some of the more reasonable criticisms of that move that I read were that we are, as the United States, being of the United States, already somewhat ahead of the curve. We, we have reduced emissions. Uh, we are working on, on electric cars. There are There is positive change. Uh, and since we are all on one globe, the problem, while we can provide leadership, and some would say we already have, we cannot control what China does. We cannot control what India does. Uh, uh, we cannot control what Brazil does. Some up-and-coming economies or, or now economic powerhouses in, in China's case that might not share our same goals and that the, the Paris Climate Accords were, were kind of uh, you know, effectively a handshake, a handshake agreement without much backing to, to make sure that they held their end of the bargain. How do we, even if we do everything we need to with this Green New Deal, how do we ensure that the rest of the globe walks along with us?
2: Well, the whole point of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is actually a negotiation that's been going on since the early 90s, since 1992, uh, is to have a way of cooperating internationally to help other countries move as fast as they can. And we need that. And in fact, every country needs that. And I think the point is that it doesn't matter what country you're in, uh, having a destabilized climate is not great for you. You know, sometimes people might say, oh, this country's gonna benefit because they'll be able to get new fossil fuel resources or it'll be warmer or whatever. But I think that's a little short-sighted because um, we could be getting into a very dangerous scenario relatively quickly where we start to have a positive feedback cycle, by which I mean the planet gets hot and then it gets even hotter and it gets hotter and it gets a sort of runaway, really dangerous scenario. And when the planet gets that hot, you know, people can literally just die from being outside. That's a, a real thing that can happen. And, you know, we're talking about Coral reefs completely collapsing, which could be collapsing um, food ecosystems in the ocean that a lot of people all around the world need to survive, and that will lead to destabilization of lots of regions. So I don't think that most countries, if they really understand this issue, want to move slowly. They want to move quickly. And the point of the climate negotiations is to help figure out how we can all move as fast as possible, and to share technologies, share policies, um, so that everybody can move fast. and The fact is that the United States is a... huge historic emitter, I believe the largest one. So we have polluted the atmosphere more than anybody else. And so to say now, oh, well, these other countries aren't doing things. Well, we have made a big mess of things. And the good news is that we are also the innovation engine of the world. The United States has amazing scientists, engineers. We can invent lots of cool stuff. And then we can sell that stuff to other countries. And that, in fact, is exactly Elizabeth Warren's plan with this idea called the green manufacturing plan, what she wants is for the U.S. to innovate new technologies. And she wants that if the government helps other companies do that and to get patents, then they have to actually make those technologies in the United States. And that will create a lot of good paying jobs. And then we can sell that technology to other countries. Uh, Bernie Sanders also talks about wanting to develop a lot of new technologies and then sharing those technologies with other countries so that other countries can reduce their emissions. And so I think that those are really positive and hopeful visions because the fact is that innovation spills across borders. It doesn't just stay in the United States. If we figure out a great new way to do something, other countries are going to do it too. You can see that in cell phones, for example. It's not like everybody's still running landlines just because they're in a poorer country. So we need all the countries in the world to be looking towards new technologies. And the United States can be the engine really driving that. And that will bring prosperity to the people who live here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, certainly, you know, we have we've seen, uh, you know, like, like like you mentioned the the Tesla Power Wall or electric mm-hmm. cars in general is something that we've uh, put a lot of time and effort into uh, and and I think everybody would hope to see that those uh, uh, will spread. You know, I guess I guess maybe the, the the question is it it doesn't matter how fast the rest of the world comes along. We we need to lead, right? Is that is that just the the, the general idea?
2: I do think that the developed world, which has more money, uh, which has a more trained workforce, needs to lead because we're going to be the ones who will be able to invent new technologies. That's what we've always managed to do in, for example, um, IT, right? If you think about all the innovations coming out of the United States and Silicon Valley, this is a huge engine of the whole world. And we could be doing the same thing for clean energy. And then we would be capturing those jobs and, you know, helping to kind of, create the future for the young people coming up today. What are their jobs going to be like? And they could be building technologies for the whole world. This is a very big opportunity. It's easy to get sad and scared about climate change, but it's also a chance to kind of um, change the way that we do things and make it less harmful for people so that people aren't breathing in polluted air from coal plants that run in their communities. That's not a good thing. So I do feel that the United States has a really good opportunity here to lead the world, but also benefit from doing that.
0: Well said. My guest has been Leah Stokes. Uh, She is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara. Leah, thank you so much for taking your time out to join us.
2: Thanks so much for
0: having me on. Politics! I want to thank our rapidly growing Titanic, ten dollar tier. Now I always call them the the the, the Titanic ten dollar tier because they are they they loom so large. But I'll tell you what, uh, we we might need the Titanic to fit them all in with how many people that are joining it. Dennis, Michael, Jonathan, Will, Peter. Olin and Angela, Christopher, Nick, Frozen Summers, Jim Wright, DL, Lindsey, Steven, Squids, Mixtape, Jaime, Adam, d Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. Join them or just pitch in, whatever you can, at takepoliticseriously.com. If you want to write into me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com is where you do it. You want to find me on social media, it is at Justin R. Young. Until next time, this is your old pal, Jerry, saying politics has three names. And I watched television where they talked about politics. And I've seen the newspaper where they talked about politics. And there was a Twitter account that talked about politics. But this is the only show, good friends, that has the stones to talk about all oh, three.